You know, on some days, life does make sense. Everything fits into place, things work out, and people are actually nice. Yeah. But to be entirely honest, on most days, it's not like that. I don't have a clue. I don't know who I am, what I'm doing, or where I'm going. It's like I just wake up. But it's not the first day of my life. I've been here for a while. I'm just stuck. It's not my fault. There's no real sense of direction. But it gets worse. I walk around every day and everything looks so safe and okay. But in reality, everything is so messed up, no one has any idea either. They just accept it and move on. I can't do that. Ignorance is bliss, but it breaks down. But that's life. Everything breaks down. It's natural. Things fall apart. Counter it. Upgrade. Upgrade again. Fill your lives with all the things that don't matter. Talking, computers, art, iPods, pets, hair gel, fashion, hugs, loud rock music, smoke, muscle, money, college, education, certification, masturbation. It's all the same. Plagiarism, drama, toothpaste, seatbelts, espresso, double espresso, supersize. It's not enough. It's never enough. Sleep. Six hours a day? No. Twelve hours a day. Earn a degree. Get a job. Make money. Spend money. Be important. Be somebody. We are all industrial, corporate, consumer robots in an existential postmodern depression overload looking for a safe escape, a rescue, or refuge, any form of hope. But it's a lost cause. What I don't get is why. Why does it have to be this way? Why are we all racing around waiting to die? Why are we so easily manipulated? The TV does our thinking for us. Apathy constricts our airways. Why is it that our culture has everything but we've never been more lost or confused? Ah, it doesn't make sense. The way I see it, there has to be a God. Everything is just too complicated. There has to be some reason or some purpose. But why is it so skewed? Why is the goal in life just to be happy and avoid pain? How can you avoid pain? Pain lets us know we're still alive. Screw Advil, but why? I still don't know why I'm here. Drugs won't help. I have to live in the real world. I think, I feel, I am real. I want to know what's real. What's the truth? I don't care how upsetting or painful it might be. Life without pain is too artificial and a world of automata isn't worth creating or living in. I want to know what's real. I refuse to surrender to conformity. I will not have my life spoon-fed to me. I may mess everything up in the end, but so be it. I'm not a robot. I want the truth. Ben. Hey. Ben, what's up, man? Oh, nothing, nothing, man. I'm just thinking. Thinking about what? <laughs> nothing. Say, and I'm so happy to see so many shining faces here today. If you are just joining us here today for the first time, we have a very special message today, and our special message today is based on an assumption that I'm making right off the bat. And that assumption is that video which I just showed, a lot of people in this room can relate to. Maybe not to the degree that was exemplified there in the video, but a lot of us, and I'm talking church people and not church people, people who call themselves Christian and not call themselves Christian, that a lot of people in this world, even though we'd never admit it on the outside, just like the boy in the video, a lot of us struggle with questions about why. And where? And what? I'm not talking about little decisions, even though we struggle with those. I'm not talking about like which job to take, which girl to marry. I'm not talking about those kind of decisions. I'm talking about like bigger decisions of life or bigger factors in life. Things like why, why am I on this path that I'm on? Why does it have to be this way? Why is this always happening or why is this never happening? If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us struggle with why is my life going in the direction that it's going? And more importantly, and more personally, is there anything I can do to change that? Or is that just the way it's going to be? Well, I don't promise that I can answer your question here today. And in fact, I probably, I probably promise that I cannot answer your question. But my hope is not to answer anyone's question as much as to point you in the right direction in terms of where you can find the answers to those questions. But I want to start before answering a question by asking a question. And it's an easy question. It's not a trick question. The question is this. Who's the most important person to ever live? Religious beliefs aside, every single person who's walked the face of this planet from the beginning to whenever the, we are right now, most important person to ever walk this planet is, is Jesus. Regardless of what you believe about him, 
Regardless if you believe he's the son of God or if you don't believe he's the son of God. If you have no religious beliefs whatsoever, you cannot deny that a man named Jesus who lived in a city called Nazareth several thousand years ago had a greater influence on this world and the people in this world than anyone else. No one has influenced more people in the world, both before his death and after his death. If you look at the life of Jesus on this earth, how would you characterize his life? If you look at just the words of Scripture and the stories that are told in the Bible, you see that Jesus didn't live your average run-of-the-mill life. Like, he wasn't, like, punching in and out in the morning, 9 to 5, and just kind of went through his days. Like, Jesus had a pretty cool life. Jesus did cool stuff like he walked on water. That's pretty cool. Like, imagine that you just out there on the beach and everyone else is walking and sinking. You just keep on going. Like, that's pretty cool. Jesus would go to parties. He went to a party one time, and they ran out of the good stuff. So he took the water, and he said, bring that water to me, and he made it a real party. He brought out the real wine. That's pretty cool stuff. Blind people would go to Jesus, and they'd walk out seeing. Some people would come to him sick, and they'd walk out healing. Jesus led a cool, cool life. And you can't by any means say that his life was ordinary or average or garden variety or mundane or anything like that. And then for us, for myself, I should say, as well as for the millions across this planet who called themselves Christians, followers of Christ, we'd say that, you know, he was much more than that. We'd say he was the son of God incarnate. We'd say that he is the alpha and the omega, that he was around even before the first guy was around. He's going to be around after the last guy's around. He's kind of around all the time in between because he's infinite. He's immeasurable. He's unchangeable. He is God incarnate. Regardless of your religious beliefs, give me one word to characterize his life. What word would you say? Well, I couldn't figure out one word, so I gave you three. <laughs> because it's too hard to fit them into one word. But they're all kind of the same word. I gave you supernatural, extraordinary, glorious. Any arguments? Anyone disagree with me? Anyone say that his life on earth was just a natural life? Yeah, it was hard to kind of, yeah, like his life, I kind of put all his accomplishments over here and then kind of put someone else's. In, anyone can compare? Anyone could say that his life was boring and ordinary? That he, you know, every day with him was just same, same old, same old. Anyone could say that his life was anything but glorious. Where the guy went, miracles followed. Glory followed. Jesus' life, by all those who would describe it, regardless of religious belief, no one can deny he did not live a natural life. He lived a supernatural life. He didn't live an ordinary life. He lived an extraordinary life. He did not live a mundane life. He lived a glorious life, and no one can deny that. Now, follow me here on this one. Follow me here on this one. History tells us. I'm not talking religion yet. I ain't talking any religion at all today. We're in a church. We don't talk about religion and politics in church. Okay? There's two things we don't talk about in church. I'm not talking any religion. I'm not talking beliefs. I'm talking about history right now. History tells us that this man who was born in, Na who was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, who lived a supernatural, extraordinary, glorious life, died. At some point in time, he walked up a mountain. He carried a cross. He went to the top of that mountain. He was crucified on the cross. And then they took his dead body down from that cross, and they buried him in a tomb, a tomb owned by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And they buried him in that tomb. But he didn't stay very long in the tomb, and history tells us a fact that he rose from the dead. Now you say, hey, wait a minute. That's, not, that's a belief. No, that's not a belief. That's a fact. And it's a fact that they buried him in a tomb, and that tomb is empty. And it's a fact that no one has been able to see his dead body ever since. And it's more of a fact that there were several eyewitnesses, and those who have ever been to trial or court know that there's nothing more powerful than eyewitness testimony. More than 500 eyewitnesses that say, I saw that man alive. Eyewitness testimony, 500 eyewitnesses. If I brought 500 eyewitnesses here and says, I saw him alive, I saw him alive. You know how long we'd be here if you had a trial? Any lawyers here? A trial had 500 eyewitnesses that say, like, there's no one that could deny it. The same Jesus who died, who was buried, rose again from the dead, and he is now alive. Everyone good with me so far? Next question. If he's alive, where does he live? Everyone who's alive has to live somewhere. Me and you, we have to have an address. You go to the anywhere, what's your mailing address? Jesus has to have a mailing address. If he's alive, he's got to be somewhere. Easy answer is he lives in heaven, which is true, but is not complete. Yes, he lives in heaven. But because he's Jesus, he decided that he liked living on earth too. So he left a piece of himself here on earth. Where does he live? Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Y'all read this verse before? 
says to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, say it with me, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which is what? Which is? Where does, where does Jesus live now? Christ lives in you. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. I'm not talking spiritual things. I'm not talking symbolic things. I'm not talking mystical things that don't make sense. I'm not that smart where I could speak at that profound a level. I'm talking logic and facts. He lived. He died. He's risen. Where does he live? He lives in you. He lives in me. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. Because the same way that Jesus was a man and he walked around on this earth 2,000 years ago and he lived inside a body. And he went around and he visited sick people in his body. And he visited hospitals in his body and lost people in his body and, 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 and blind people and all these kinds of people. He visited them in his body. Is that he died, okay, but he still lives. And now his body is nice and dressed in black like this. Sharp body, don't you think? And there's a body over there and a body over there and even that body over there and that body over there. That's where he lives now, or at least, as I said, that's where he's supposed to be living today. The mere fact that God lives in me, that Jesus lives in me, Jesus whose life was supernatural, extraordinary, glorious, the mere fact that Jesus lives in me means that my life should be supernatural, extraordinary, glorious. I love this verse, John 14, verse 12. Tells you what our life on this earth is supposed to look like. All I'm talking so far is supposed to. I know my supposed to is different than reality, but we'll get to that. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, this is what Jesus said, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Jesus said, you believe in me, I'm going to live in you. And if I live in you, don't be, don't put this in your mind that you're going to live this kind of life because you can't, like just logic says, if you have a supernatural, extraordinary, glorious God inside you, then you cannot live a boring, ordinary, miserable life. You can't. It can't be that way. Like, I can't have the life of the party in my house and have a boring party. I can't have the way, the truth, and the life inside me. I can't have the Son of God inside me. I can't have this extraordinary inside me and not live an extraordinary life. Our God, there's a nice song on the radio that says, Our God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside. And the same way that our God walked around this earth, and you never saw him anything other than those, verb, those adjectives I said, supernatural, extraordinary, glorious. He lives today. But the supernatural, extraordinary, and glorious is supposed to be me. Go back in time. You read the stories about Jesus. You know what his life was like. Can you imagine walking down the street and seeing Jesus <sighs> sulking? And say, hey, Jesus, what's wrong? Say, just everything's wrong. Confused miserable, depressed, guilt, shame. Can you imagine seeing Jesus like that? You can't even picture it, can you? Well, I can picture it. You want me to show you how to picture it? Go look in the mirror. Go look around. Because unfortunately, that's what happens in the world today. Is that Jesus is alive on the inside. But unfortunately, there are many of us walking around with guilt, with shame, with confusion, with misery, And that's not how it's supposed to be. You know how it's supposed to be? It's supposed to be John 10.10. 10. This is how it's supposed to be. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I want you to say that verse with me so we all stick it in our head. Say it with me. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Say it like you mean it. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. That's you and that's me. That abundant life. Abundant, I just couldn't fit it up on the slide. You go extraordinary, supernatural, glorious, you put abundant in there. Real life, life to the fullest. That's the life that we're supposed to be living. But unfortunately, for many of us, reality falls way short of that. You want me to tell you something that you may never have understood before and so many people out there don't understand and so many people and I myself for several years of my life never understood is this whole Jesus thing this whole God thing this whole church thing why do we do all this stuff that we do why 
Why do I want you to go to church? Why do I want you to, to know who God is? Why? We oftentimes have in our mind, it's the right thing to do. Be a good boy, be a good girl. Because you need to go to church just because you need to go to church. All that stuff, is none of that stuff is true. You don't go to church because the church needs you. You don't pray to God because God needs you. You pray, you know God, you have a relationship with God because you need this. This is what it's all about. It's not about this, it's about this. It's about that he has life to offer us. Life not of confusion. Life not of frustration. Life not of guilt and doubt and shame and darkness and, 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 and whatever you want to add. But life, abundant life. And everything that we do is to get this life. We read the Bible to find this life. We pray so God can guide us in this life. We have fellowship with one another, so we strengthen that life in one another. We come to church so that we, I always think of it like candles. When you put a whole bunch of candles together, you get a big blowtorch, all right? We come together so that our life is magnified in, in, in community together. But it's all about this life. Life with him, abundant. Life without him, not abundant. Life with him, extraordinary. Life without him, unextraordinary. Ordinary. Okay, let's just go ordinary or unextraordinary. Life with him, glorious. Life without him, confusion. Like we saw in that intro video. You know what's the worst feeling in the world? What's the worst feeling in the world when you go to work? And you work, work, work all day and get nothing done. Isn't that the worst? Isn't that the worst feeling? When you work, 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 and get nothing done. I was almost at one of those moments yesterday where we bought this thing for the TV, the stand. It was our first trip to Ikea. Okay, and the Ikea, and you know how Ikea packages everything in 10,000 little pieces, and the instructions are so cool that they don't have words. Okay, just pictures. All right? So I guess this gets by for most people, but I got to the very end, and I thought, I, I wasn't true, but I thought that at the very end that I put the first piece on backwards, and I was going to throw the whole thing out the window and just start over from scratch because there's nothing more frustrating than working, 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 and getting nothing done. How many of us live our lives that way? No, I want to find satisfaction. I want to find fulfillment. I want to find purpose. I want to find significance. And we work and we work and we work and we try and we try this and we try that and we get this degree and we get that degree and we get this job and that job and we get that promotion and that promotion and we move into this house and move out of this house and we get with this girl and we hate that girl. We, we try and 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 in the end we find ourselves that we're more frustrated than we started with. And we found nothing. And you know what? You give up. Nothing's more frustrating. And Jesus came to solve that problem for us. You know what? Trying to live extraordinary, supernatural, glorious life without Christ in you. You know what that's like doing? That's like trying to chop down a tree with scissors. In theory, if you try to chop down a tree with scissors, it could work. Like theoretically, it's a blade. And theoretically, it could work. But practically speaking, it ain't never going to work. And life is the same way. If you're trying to live supernatural, extraordinary, glorious Without Christ, in theory, you could convince yourself that it could work. I, if I just got that right job, I just had this lucky break, you convince yourself that it could work. But it ain't never going to work. And if it does, we're going to be really tired at the end of it. And it isn't going to last. If we're going to live extraordinary lives, we need extraordinary power. Where does that power come from? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says this. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness... When it says pertain to life, it means that life, that extraordinary life. Not this life, that life. His power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Y'all know what this verse says? You don't need to be a, a Bible scholar to understand what this says means that when you know him and you have him in your life, you got cool stuff in your life. And if you don't know him and you don't have him in your life, you're going to stay with the corruption that's in this world. Your choice. Your choice. With him, you can live this. Without him, you got no shot of getting past this. And you work and you work and you work and you work, and maybe you hit that ceiling, and maybe you push it up a little, and maybe, but with him, you start here. Said another way. I believe that God has given to me and you a supernatural identity in Christ. Through his son, who came down and lived on this earth, like I said, lived, 
died, buried, risen, and now continues to live. And even though he went up and lives in heaven, he left a little piece of himself on this earth, which is the Holy Spirit, which is his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jesus. He left him on this earth to live inside all of us. And through that gift, then we have a supernatural identity in Christ. What does that mean? I don't like to talk theory, because again, I'm not smart enough to be theoretical or theological. I want to talk practical, and I want to show you three verses from the early church, book of Acts, that show you what this life can look like. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Acts 15, 12. And all the multitude kept silent, listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. That's supposed to be me and you. Who's Paul and who's Barnabas? Who's Stephen and who's Paul? These are only bodies that carried the Spirit of God. Who are they? They ain't no one. They're like me and you, but they had inside them Christ through his Spirit and through the Spirit of God which lived in them, they lived a supernatural, extraordinary, glorious life. The Spirit of Christ ain't dead. The Spirit of Christ is still alive and he's still looking for little bodies today. It doesn't matter what your body looked like. He's trying to come and make his home in there. He likes to accumulate residences, right? Lots of mailing addresses. And he wants to have a mailing address inside your life, inside your body. Again, I don't want to just talk theory and just say a whole bunch of words that sound nice. I want to draw you a picture. True story that happened to me several years ago, back before I was married, back before I was a priest, back before all kinds of stuff. And I've told some people this story before, so I'm sure you heard me. For those who heard me for a while, heard me tell this story. And it's a story of me and my struggling felucca. Y'all know what a felucca is? Who knows what a felucca is? Right, whoever been to Egypt knows what a felucca is. If you don't know what a felucca is, it's basically like a sailboat, but much worse. <laughs> okay? Like much rickettier older somehow because it's like in Egypt so everything's just older there like like a sailboat but just like like one that's malnourished okay think of it that way so anyway so if you're in Egypt all right and we're at the family vacation or whatever it is and we go to the Nile area and we take a felucca trip okay every felucca because it's because it's not like a sailboat because it's old and rickety like it has a very high skill level to operate one of these things you can't just be some guy off the street and operate a felucca. Okay, like maybe a sailboat, but higher level of, of training. So usually the felucca driver is someone who looks about like this. Okay? And all of them look exactly like that. Exactly. So we're there inside the felucca. Me and my family and this gentleman. Okay? And the gentleman comes in black and white as well. Okay? It's not just a picture. Like he himself is black and white as well. All right? That's how old he is. We're there and we're driving. And we start at the shore, okay, and then it's a nice, enjoyable ride. You kind of see the scenery and what's going on. And as we're going, he's doing all the work. But he's not really doing anything. He just lifts the sails up and the wind just kind of blows the boat wherever. All right, and then it starts to time to turn around. It's starting to get dark or whatever it may be. So he turns the, the felucca around. And I'm telling you, as if like on a dime, on a dime, the second we turned around, all the wind that had been blowing stopped. Stopped to the point that I'm telling you, you could have plucked a hair off your head, dropped it, and it had gone straight to the bottom of the ocean. Like, no wind. No wind in sight. So the Felucca engineer guy pulls out these oars that are older than the Felucca and him combined. And this guy starts rowing. All right? And I'm not the most patient person. And I'm kind of like, I like a challenge. I like, uh, like I, so I said, step off, okay, give me the oars. So me and my brother, we started taking the oars. Instantly, I'm going to like go faster than him, okay? So we're competitive. So we start oaring, we're oaring, we're oaring, and we're, we're struggling, and we're, we're rowing, and we're, we're, we're all doing all that kinds of stuff. And you do it for like 10, 15 minutes, all, no, let's say 5, 10 minutes, all right? And then you see how far you've gone in 5, 10 minutes, and you moved about here to about here. Then you keep on rowing, you keep on rowing, you keep on rowing. And I'm telling you, we rowed and we rowed and we rowed and we rowed and we rowed. And eventually we probably moved about six to seven feet. And then finally the wind picked up and luckily it took us all back. That picture, that picture is how many of us live our lives. 
on the way as we were going, minimal effort. Minimal effort. But lots of results. Why? Because we had wind. On the way back, lots of efforts, lots of sweating, lots of frustration. And results? Minimal. Why? Because we didn't have wind. What's the wind in our lives? Who's the wind in our lives? It's Christ in us. See how many of us live our lives? It's like that pathetic felucca without the wind. And we struggle. And like I said, we go for our degrees and we go for our accomplishments and we go for whatever, our achievements. And we're going and we're going and we're going. But when the wind is blowing, you could be 100 years old like this guy. And you could be moving. Why? Because the power of Christ in us. Nothing is worse than working hard, getting nothing done. Nothing is worse than working forever on your marriage and getting nothing done. Nothing is worse than trying to be, live that life and not getting there. Nothing is worse than trying to get your relationships in order, your career in order, your life in order, your eternity in order, and working and struggling and striving and no results. Is that how God made us to live on this earth? Did God make us to be like a felucca with no wind, old and rickety, struggling? Is that how God made us to live? Or did God make us to be like the felucca when the wind was blowing? Did God make us to be cruising through this life like those guys that I showed you them verses? That they went, and yeah, they may not have had all the material stuff, but where they went, they had the power of God with them. And no matter what the world, like we sang that nice song, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. And that's the way they were. They went places, and they had the power of God with them because they had the power of God inside them because they had Jesus inside them. I love this verse, Ephesians 1.18. We did an entire retreat several years ago about this verse. Ephesians 1.18 says that you may know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We called it the retreat, Lifestyles of the Rich and Glories. That's the logo. That you may know, this is my prayer for you and my prayer for me, that you may know, know at an intimate, experiential level, not just know of, but that you may know the riches of the glory of his inheritance for you and for me. That you may know that you don't have to live just rowing. That you may know that life doesn't always have to be difficult. That you may know that life isn't always supposed to be frustrating. That there are times and seasons, yes, where we have that frustration and that confusion and that whatever. But that is not supposed to be how our lives as the followers of Christ are characterized. That's not how the lives of the early followers of Christ were characterized. And that's not supposed to be how our life is characterized. You have riches. You have glory. You have good stuff. What I want to look at now is how we get that. And again, I'm not going to answer all your questions. But I just want to point in the right direction. And I believe that there's a, there's a nice story I alluded to it earlier from John chapter 2, which is the story of when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. It's a great story. It's a fun story. Like every college kid's favorite story. Jesus turned water into wine. Like you can't go better than that story. It's a great story about how Jesus wants to give us that life. I know you all know the story, but just for my sake, let's read through the story kind of quickly, okay? Just for my sake. I know you all know the story. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? When Jesus said woman, it wasn't disrespectful. It's not like if I say to you, woman, what's you got to do with me? It's not like that, okay? It was a sign of respect, okay? Different cultures say different things mean different things. Jesus was not disrespectful in any way. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to him, said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. At a party, ran out of wine. Jesus, help us. We ain't got no wine. Ain't much of a party without the wine. Jesus says, not yet my time. Okay, but for your sake, he gave her this look of like, aw, shucks. Okay, I'll do it for you. She says to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Trust me, he knows what he's doing. Now there were set there six water pots, water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Jesus 
if I say to you, Jesus is going to make wine, he could have just wine. He didn't even need to. He could have just wine. He didn't even need to. He could have just, right? He could have just made wine. Like, that's how he made the world. Like, he just could have made it. But he didn't. He did something funny. He said, bring me six water pots of stone. Oh, it's water pots of stone filled with water. Okay, we'll come back to that. And fill up the water. Then he turned it into wine. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Two lessons about how to live this life from this story of the wedding of Cana of Galilee. The first lesson. To live a new life, I must let go of the old one. Basic principle of life applies in every area. To live a new life, I must let go of the old one. As I said a minute ago, Jesus could have wine. Jesus could have made it rain wine if he wanted. He could have made explosions of wine all around. But he didn't. He told the servants, see that big, heavy stone thing? He said, yeah. They said, go fill it with water, make it even bigger and heavier and more obnoxious to carry, and then bring it over here. And then go do it again. And then go do it again. And then go do it again, all six, and then bring them over here. If I'm the servants, I'm like, okay, Jesus, it's just logic. I got a bad back. Either way, you're going to make a miracle. Just make it. Or why not I just fill it over there and just make wine over there? Like, if you're going to go that, like, why not, if you're going to, if you ask my opinion, like, you might as well pour the cups for the people as well. <laughs> like, why do I have to bring the water all the way over here? Why, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish, he had to have five loaves and two fish? Why? Why didn't Jesus just snap his fingers and make it? Like, come on, if you can turn five loaves into feed 5,000, like, you could have done it without any of it. Like, that's a hard enough miracle. Why? Why Jesus always likes stuff? He likes stuff. He could make stuff out of thin air, and he did when he created the world. But when it comes to God giving you a new life, the way he works is this. You give him the old, he gives you the new. He could take the old. He never takes the old. You give the old, he gives you the new. You hold the old, he holds the new. It's up to you. He's a mirror. He's a mirror. You give, he gives. You hold, he holds. If you want to receive a new life from Christ, you must be willing to let go of your old one. Can I be honest? I'm going to be honest. Don't be offended. Don't be offended. We look for gimmicks. We look for shortcuts. We look for any way to get what we want without having to give up what we don't want to give up. We look for shortcuts. You want to get to this new life, you're going to try to get around. There's one area you cannot get around. Repentance. Change. You try to get around it. You try to make a way where you can have without giving up. But you can't never have without giving up. You can't never have without giving up. Another true story I'll tell you. One time I was, I was at, uh, this again was one of our, it was, it was a retreat we were doing. It was like a high school girls retreat. Probably like five, six years ago. I don't know what it was. All right. And anytime I go on these retreats, I would try to get there early. I right, try to get a little peace and quiet before all the high school girls came. Because obviously, okay. So I got there early, and I remember they were delayed, and they probably got lost on the way or waited for some person who was late or whatever it was. Whatever reason, they were really late. So I told them when they came, leave the bags, go eat. I'll unload all the stuff myself, okay? I said, just go down and eat. I want the program to go, so I'm going to unload the stuff myself. So I started carrying bags and carrying all this stuff, and I got stuff on my head and stuff, and I'm trying to be as efficient as possible. And I remember this specific retreat, it was about, the topic was the tabernacle of God. And those who know what the tabernacle is, okay, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was where God resided. Okay, it was like the presence of God. It was about, like, that's where God was. And we had made this little, like, like this, like, thing, model of the, of the Holy of Holies, of the Ark. Okay, that, it's like a big wooden box. Doesn't really matter what it is, okay? It was a big, heavy box I had to carry, and that box represented the presence of God. That's all you need to know. 
and I'm carrying stuff, and I got stuff on my shoulder, and stuff on my this, and stuff on my that, and then I try to carry this box, and like lean it against my hip, you know, when you try to like lean it like that, and it's slipping, and I'm like, I'm about to drop the presence of God, and like in the Bible, that's like really bad, okay, and I know it's just a model, but I didn't want, so I threw everything down, and I just carried this with my two arms, and believe me, right there, it popped in my head, perfect picture, so many of us, we want God, but we don't want to let go of the stuff, I want to keep my stuff, I want to keep my old friends, keep my old job, keep my old habits, and just God, just kind of like, come on, I'll kind of lean you over here, okay, and we'll kind of go through life like this, okay, and God says, no, you want to carry me, let go, you say, God, but I really like this stuff, you can choose, I'm not telling you don't have the stuff, but I'm telling you me, I'm big, I'm God, and I don't fit in your pocket, I don't fit in commercial breaks, I'm big, you want me, Put the other stuff down. And if you're not willing to put the other stuff down, don't cry to me and tell me that you don't know where I am. I'm here. Here I am. I'm ready to jump into your life, but you're going to need two hands to catch me. And so many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we are looking for gimmicks. We are looking for shortcuts. We're looking for ways that we can sneak into this supernatural, extraordinary, glorious life without leaving our old. And it never works. There's a nice book that I was reading. It was talking about repentance, and it said this. It said, we are all called to run the race for Jesus, and repentance is the starting line. I loved it. It's a book written by a missionary. We're all called to run the race for Jesus, and repentance is the starting line. Look, I don't know much about much, but I know this. If there's a race in life, and you're not at the starting line, you are never going to win the prize. And the starting line for a life with Jesus is repentance. And if you're trying to start anywhere other than repentance, good luck to you, man. Every promise of the Bible, every promise that you hear on Christian radio and Christian music and in any sermon, every promise begins with repentance. And if you are trying to cash in a check from God without repentance, you're spinning your wheels, man, because it doesn't work that way. The baseline, the premise of every promise of God is repentance. That's number one. Number two, to live a new life, I must stop trying to attain it through self-effort. We said the first one, to get the new life, let go of the old. Second, to get the new, stop trying to do it through self-effort. It seems like contradictory. What does that mean by not trying to do it through self-effort? Let's go back to the wedding of Cana of Galilee. In the story, Jesus said, bring me the pots of water. He brought the pots of water, and Jesus made it water into wine. Obviously, we're just imagining right now. How long do you think it took Jesus to do that miracle? How long? Give an estimate. An hour, half hour, probably a minute or two, right? That's how we kind of picture it. He just kind of brought it. It took a minute or two. Let's say I'm one of the servants. I say, you know what? That Jesus thinks he's really cool. I bet you I can do that. There's some people who have that spirit, right? No matter what anyone does, they always say, like, well, I can do that too, you know? No matter what it is, that, yeah, I can do that. So imagine you're the servants, and you say, you know what? I can do that, but I need more time. Okay, take an hour. You think they could have done it if they had an hour? Two hours. Three hours. You think if they had, well, give them a couple days, give them a weekend. You think if they had a weekend, they could have found a way to turn the water into wine? How about if they had the internet? <laughs> Would the internet have helped? Google? Any way that any amount of effort, if they try, 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 try hard at all the little engine that could, any way that they'd been able to do this miracle that Jesus did? A wise man once said, some things are not a matter of effort, but a matter of ability. My wife, she's the best. If she tries really, really, really hard to dunk a basketball, like, with all due respect, sweetheart, like, it's not going to work. She's 4'11 and a half. And anytime you start saying and a half, you know that you, you, you. It's not a matter of her trying harder. Notice I didn't use myself in that example because I think that one day I might be able to. Okay. I have confidence in my own ability, but for her. It's not a matter of effort. It's not a matter of she needs to try harder. It's not a matter of she needs those cool shoes that have the thing that works your calves. It's not a matter of those things. It's a matter of certain things just ain't going to happen. Some things aren't a matter of effort. They're a matter of ability. 
Try to live the glorious life on your own. Try. Try to pray all day. Try to go to every church in the whole wide world. Try to live in church. Try. Try to do everything right. Try. It's not a matter of effort. It's not a matter of work harder. The glorious life is not something to attain, but to obtain. The glorious life is not something to attain, but obtain. What's the difference? Look at this verse. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. says this. It says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will born of God. Tell me this. How much effort, what could you do to make yourself born of God? If I gave you a week, two weeks, three weeks, without him in the picture, your own self-effort, is there anything that you can do to achieve born of God? Like if you read more of the Bible, or if you, if you went to church more, or if you prayed more, there's nothing you can do to make yourself child of God. Only he can do it inside you. And the glorious life is the same way. It's a gift of God. That's why, kind of put, let me put these two together. And I'm going to bring you a verse from Hebrews chapter 6. The starting point of this new life, I'm summarizing the first two. Let go of the old, not self-effort, is repentance and faith. Repentance, letting go of the old. Faith, believing that he will give you this gift. It's a gift that cannot be earned. It's a gift that can only be received. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1, this is what St. Paul tells us. He says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. What's the foundation? Foundation is two things. Repentance from dead works, letting go of the old, and faith towards God, trusting him to give the new. This is the life, the glorious, extraordinary, supernatural, rich, abundant life is based on this foundation, built on this foundation. Left foot and right foot. Repentance from dead works, letting go of the old, and faith toward God, to give you the new. You know, that sneaky little devil, just as much as we believe in there's a God, we believe in there's a devil. And that sneaky little devil would love, love to shake. If he can't convince you to not do number one, he would love to shake you on number two. And he would love to convince you that God, if you trust him, he's going to mess up your life. I'm not going to embarrass you, make you put up your hands. But if I ask how many people ever thought that, hey, wait a minute, if I do it God's way, he's going to ruin my life. He's not going to give me the best. Every one of us would raise our hands and probably our feet too because we've all been there. So you know what? I want to do it God's way. But what if, and then you start to the what ifs, and that's from the devil. But what if I never? Or what if I get stuck in? Or what if he, and you start those what if games. That's the devil's game. And he would love for you to doubt God's goodness. You know why heaven is perfect? Because nobody in heaven doubts God's goodness. And everyone in heaven says, whatever he says, I'll do. And whatever he says, I'll do, we don't doubt that. That's what life in heaven is all about. Repentance, faith, two steps. Last story I'll tell you. Illustrate it for you in case you picked up nothing of what I said. Let me tell you a little story about a girl named Jenny. And Jenny... This little six-year-old girl, okay, six-year-old girl, cutest little girl that you can imagine. Dad, she got dad wrapped around her finger. One day, little Jenny is shopping in a store with mom. And little Jenny sees this pink box, okay, and it's got these pearls in it. They're like toy pearls, all right? And she says, I want that. And the mom says, you ain't having that. And the kid says, I want that. And the mom says, you ain't having that. And crying and fighting and the store and the pulling and all this kind of stuff. This is not a true story. In case everyone's looking at Marianne, this is not a true story. <laughs> okay? This is not. This is a make it made up story. Okay? Anyway, they get home. Little girl's all grumpy. Mom didn't give me the thing. So she goes to dad because dad is wrapped around the pinky, as every dad is with a little six-year-old girl. She goes to dad and tells the story. So dad says, okay, let's, let's do it logic. You want this? If you save up enough money for the pearls, you can have the pearls. So the girl says, done. So the girl goes to her piggy bank, smashes the piggy bank, grabs all the pennies and counts them and the nickel and stuff like that. She's still a few dollars short. She goes under the couch cushions, all the stuff, rounds up some more change, 
still a few dollars short. She does her chores or, or whatever responsibilities, mows the lawn, I don't know, whatever she does. And she earns enough money. She walks her, pr not even walks, she prances, prances her way into that store with her mom watching, okay? And she throws down that money on the counter and she buys herself them pearls. And them pearls are just the joy of her life. And she wears her little pearls and she puts on a little hat and she's in the little mirror and she loves her pearls. She loves her pearls and her pearls are everything to her. Daddy comes to her room at night, tuck her in for bed at the bedtime routine. And Daddy says to her, Jenny, do you trust me? Jenny says, of course I trust you, Dad. As she's like wearing her pearls and stuff. And Daddy says, okay, give me the pearls. Oh, no, Daddy. Oh, no, Daddy, I can't give you these pearls. No, no, no. Here, uh, take my stuffed animal, but don't take the pearls. So Dad says, okay, you know Daddy loves you, right? He says, yes. Okay, good night, good night, kiss, kiss, hug, hug, good night. A couple days later, dad comes back in, bedtime routine. He says, Jenny, you trust me? She kind of, she's heard this before. She says, yeah, trust you. He says, give me the pearls. Oh, no, daddy. I can't give you the pearls. No, 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 daddy. Take anything else. Here, take, take, take my toys. Take, take, take this, but don't take the pearls. No, daddy, don't take the pearls. And she starts to cry. Daddy says, no, no, don't worry. Keep the pearls, that's fine. You know daddy loves you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hug, hug, kiss, kiss, good night, good night, good night. A couple days later, Daddy walks back in the room. Now, this time, when Daddy walks in the room, she's crying. She's crying. Daddy says, what's wrong? And the girl says, Daddy, here, you can have it. She's crying. So, of course, now the dad's crying. A little tear in his eye. And Dad says, Jenny, I'm proud of you. And he takes the pearls and he puts them in his pocket. Then he reaches his other hand in his other pocket, pulls out another case, opens it up, and gives the girl a set of real pearls. And he said, I've had this waiting for you this whole time. I was just waiting for you to give me the fake pearls. I think that's a picture of life today. Is that God has real pearls, real treasure, real joy, real satisfaction, real purpose, real significance, real whatever it is, fill in the blank. What it is you're looking for in life? And you're trying to find it by any means possible. And you got all these imitation fake stuff. And he's sitting there just waiting for you to give it to you. And the trust, he knows what he's doing when he asks for it. I don't believe that our life on this earth was meant to be full of frustration and confusion and darkness. I don't believe that. I don't believe that this life, this body was engineered to live that way. This was engineered to live this abundantly. Give you life, give it more abundantly. That's how this was made. The instruction manual for this says that life should be like this. But the only way it works is when it has the right fuel on the inside. The only way it works is when it has Christ on the inside. The only way Christ is on the inside is when there's repentance, letting go of the old, and trusting him to give the new. I'm inviting you today, I'm inviting you today to learn more about this life that he's come to give us. Starting next week here at the well, we're going to start a new series. The new series is called I Am. Now it's going to be a five-week series, and it's going to be based on many times in the Gospel of, of St. John, Jesus said, actually seven times, Jesus said, I am, and then he filled in the blank. In the I am statements of Christ, and they're very famous. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. He made these I am statements. And we're going to each week look at one of these I am, and the whole purpose of it is to know him. Because when we know him, and we have a relationship with him, and then we invite him to live in our life by letting go of the old and trusting him to give the new. Then all of a sudden, we start to experience what this life is. We can't live this life if we don't know him. Okay, like I said, there's no gimmick. It's not like, come listen to me, give a sermon, sign a piece of paper, and you can have the life by lunchtime. It's not like that. It comes by knowing him. So I'm inviting everyone to come back to that. And we have a little short little video clip.
about that series. Check this out. I think he is a pretty cool guy. He had a, a peaceful philosophy. I think he's misinterpreted by a lot of people. I don't know, because I don't really believe in him, so I don't really think anything of him. I, I mean, he could have been a real person. I mean, I'm sure he was. I mean, I'm sure he was just, you know, good at what he did or something. Jesus is the, our Lord and Savior that died on the cross for us for our sins. I feel that Jesus is a modern-day scapegoat. Jesus is God's son, and he was sent to save our sins. Who is Jesus? He was a dude. Lived back in the day. Pretty awesome. He had a beard. He was just kind of a guy with a really unique, positive message as that kind of gave a lot of people a lot of hope. He probably existed, but I don't believe that he was the son of God or anything. He died on the cross for us and uh, saved us and rose again from the dead. Uh, Jesus was a man, from what I figure. What if you're right and he was just another nice guy? What if you're right? What if it's true? They say the cross will only make a fool of you. But what if you're is for everyone to come find out the answers to those questions because as you saw there's a lot of confusion but the answer to that question of who he is is the most important question in the whole wide world let's stand up together and say a prayer please in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit one god amen dear god we thank you for bringing us here together and for the message that you gave us lord we believe that our lives were not meant to be ordinary we believe that we were meant to live an extraordinary life, a glorious life, not like the way that we live and we see so many people living. We trust in you, Lord, that you're the only way that we can find that life. We pray that starting today, Lord, that you would reveal to us step by step how we can live that life, the abundant life, the glorious life that you have planned for us. We ask this in the name of your only begotten Son, our Lord and our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the intercessions and prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very much. Have a great week, and hopefully see you back next weekend. You got your mind.